This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. Well, as we've already heard, we are beginning a new series uh, for preaching uh, beginning today on the life of the prophet Elijah and his interaction with the kings of Israel. And so we're beginning with uh, 1 Kings chapter 16, starting at verse 29, and on into the first verse of chapter 17. And let's listen carefully. In the 38th year of Asa, the king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built at Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to promote, to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. And then in chapter 17, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Shall we pray? Father, we acknowledge this morning that you are a great and holy and mighty God. There is none like you, for there is none but you. We are privileged to stand in your presence not because of what we have done, our merits, our holiness, our righteousness, but simply because of your love and your grace and your kindness that found us out. You opened our eyes and our ears to the things that are true. The gospel became relevant to us, and we have embraced and received your love and your grace through Jesus Christ. So, Father, we are truly, truly blessed. We're very aware, Lord, that as weeks go by, there are still people in our church family who are going through difficult and stressful and and unpleasant times with ill health, with confusion, with depression, still trying to overcome this pandemic, trying to work their way through changes in the economy. In every case, Lord, you have shown yourself faithful and true, and you are worthy of our praise, our adoration, and we run to you and we cling to you and your many promises. 
Father, send your spirit upon those people in our church family who just need to be reminded that indeed you are still on the throne. Lord, you've given us wonderful opportunities in our church to be a beacon of outreach and ministry. We thank you in advance for the preparations for VBS and for our summer camp program and uh, for our grief seminar. We thank you for our ongoing Bible studies and prayer opportunities, all of them, Lord, geared toward giving people encouragement and support in their walk with the Savior. We thank you as well, Lord, for our many, many uh, decades of uh, service and, and opportunity as we've sent missionaries around the world and church planters to begin new ministries in places where the gospel uh, has not been experienced. We count it a privilege, Lord, to be um, the conduits of your love and grace. We thank you for the enablement that we have uh, to give and to give faithfully and generously, not only to the ministries and programs of our local church, but as we assist other churches in that same endeavor. And again, Lord, we thank you for this new series before us, these wonderful stories of confidence and love and grace that you have showered upon your people in the face of coldness and resistance and disobedience. You sent your prophets to, to give a word of, of, of warning and encouragement and support, trying to get these kings to get back on track. Lord, what may we examine our hearts in these coming weeks, that we would be all that you've asked us to be. And of course, Lord, as we gather around the Lord's table later in our service, we do examine ourselves to be sure that we are part of the family of God and that we are coming in a, in a worthy manner uh, as we come to the table. And now, Lord, speak through Pastor Carr as he uh, begins this new series for us. Help us to be mindful that these are the inspired words of, of God. And Lord, may we be encouraged and, and uh, desirous of living obedient lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning, First Prez. It's a joy to be with you this morning. And as we begin this new series, one of the things that jumps out as far as attention is there seems to be a conflict between Ahab and Elijah. And of course, every conflict needs to have an antagonist. Now, an antagonist can be defined as the one who is against the protagonist. It's against the hero or the main character of the text. Think of Darth Vader against Luke Skywalker. Or maybe you think about the Joker against Batman. But every good story has a villain and a hero. What's interesting about this text is the hero of the story is not who you may assume because most of what is written is about Ahab. And yet in one verse, verse 17, we're introduced to Elijah. See, we call Elijah the heroic antagonist. He will be putting his fly, if you will, in the sense of the ointment of Ahab repeatedly. He will constantly be poking at Ahab as he calls out his sin and calls him 
and the people of Israel to repentance. The setting begins in verse 29 of chapter 16, where we're introduced with this king, Ahab. Before we get to Ahab, we have to ask the question, who is he and where did he come from? Well, we need to go back in Scripture to see the lineage of kings. All the way back to the book of Genesis, we're told that Abraham was given a promise of a blessing. That blessing is a great name, a great land, and a great people. And he was told that kings would come from him. In the Old Testament, the greatest of those kings seems to be David. And David had a son, Solomon, who was the wisest in the land. And the kingdom seemed to be at its peak. Shortly after Solomon, we see the kingdom divided. Divided between the south and the north. Divided between Judah and Israel. Israel and north will have ten tribes. And both Judah and the northern tribe Israel will have bad kings. But specifically in the north, all the kings will be bad. In fact, up to this point, before we get to Ahab, seven kings are mentioned. Seven kings, beginning with one named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was actually the servant in the house of Solomon. He was actually a servant, and he was there serving alongside Solomon's reign when Rehoboam was to become king. And Rehoboam, of course, the son of Solomon, was a bad king. He wouldn't listen to the wisdom of others and ultimately began to tax the people more and more to which Jeroboam said with the people, what portion do we have with David? Let's go do our own thing. And 10 tribes went with him. He led those tribes into apostasy. In fact, as we listen to the very words of Jeroboam, he says, It is too much for you to go down to Jerusalem. Behold, your gods, O Israel. Notice the gods which brought you up out of Egypt. What were the gods to which Jeroboam was pointing? But golden calves. Golden calves that he had remade and actually placed in Bethel and Dan so that the people of Israel would not go to Jerusalem. To do this, he had to appoint his own priest, and he did this by selecting his own men, not from the tribe of Levi, but his own people, people that would be loyal to his mission. And he created his own feast days so that the people wouldn't feel a need to go and worship in Jerusalem. Jeroboam was a horrible king in every respect. He broke God's word in every way. He created images. He violated the where of worship as well as the who was to lead worship. And he even broke the when of worship. Apostasy was known in Jeroboam's kingdom. Jeroboam was not alone. For all the kings that followed in the north followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam. We're told of, of those kings who were drunkards, idol worshipers, and even murderers. But the worst of all the kings in the north is Ahab. Ahab is known to have done the most vile things before the eyes of God. Look at our text in verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. 
What a description to be given of an individual. You're the most wicked. You're the most vile. You're the most defiled. That is a picture of who Ahab is. Ahab goes out of his way to serve other gods. He actually marries Jezebel, who was from a pagan culture in which her own father was known, get this, as Baal is alive. That was her father's name. And Jezebel ultimately swaying more and more of the evil that was already in Ahab to do vile things such as to tear down the places where God should be worshipped and to erect their own places of worship. They removed the worship of Jehovah and they sought that all people would worship Baal and the Asterisk. The Astra, if you don't know it, is just the queen mother of all gods. She's just representing the most vile way in which we can pollute our worship to God. And yet here we see them pushing the people of Israel far from Jehovah and more and more into idolatry. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 18 that there were some 450 prophets of Baal and some 400 prophets of of Astra in Ahab's kingdom. Soon under his leadership, it would be said that Baal lives and Jehovah ceases to be. What a vile man. And what a wicked time. According to chapter 16, verse 33, we read one of the most astounding things about Ahab. Draw your eyes to the page. It says, and Ahab made an astra. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. What a wicked man. What a wicked time to live. Goes on to say in verse 34 that Ahab, while he was alive and under his reign, there was a push to rebuild Jericho. If you don't know the story of Jericho, it was God's deliverance of his people and God showing his people that they would own the land that that was occupied by the pagans. And they came to a great fortified city as they were exiting the land of Egypt and as they were traveling through the promised land, they came to this place where this fortified city stood, which they thought, how can we ever conquer it? And God says, watch. As they marched around, as they blew trumpets for some seven days, and eventually the walls came tumbling down. But what's most amazing about that is Joshua said in great warning through prophecy that the builder of the foundations, his son would be required. The builder and the reestablisher of the gates, his youngest son's, would be required, meaning their death. And yet it was during Ahab's reign that this fortified city, the foundation was reestablished. It was during Ahab's reign that the gates were placed again in Jericho. And what took place? 
We're told that the builder did, in fact, lose his firstborn son. The builder did, in fact, lose his youngest son. God was faithful to his promise, yet Ahab and his wickedness did not listen. What an evil time to live as the leadership of the people was rebuilding an accursed Jericho in open defiance to God. And when God showed his strength, he ignored God's message. It's into this that chapter 17, verse 1 falls. It's into this wickedness and this vile time that we're told that Elijah, the prophet of God, enters the scene. What's astounding about chapter 17, verse 1, just two words in, and we're told, now Elijah. We're not told where he came from. We're not told about his call. We're not told anything about Elijah. We're just told he appears. He appears into this wicked time, under this vile king. As Elijah appears, we're told that God enters the scene. For listen to the words of Elijah. Elijah said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, notice the emphasis on lives, in the face of Ahab who said, Jehovah has ceased to be. Elijah makes it clear that God is alive and well. Friends, as you think about this, I want you to understand the dire situation for the people the wickedness which was permeating all around them as they were encouraged by the culture to worship the things of Baal and Asterisk they were encouraged not to worship the living and true God it was in this scene that Elijah the prophet of God takes his place again we don't know where he came all that's said about him is that he's from Gilead And that could mean that he's either from the tribe of Gad or maybe Manasseh. We don't really know. There's nothing more said about his whereabouts and his background. It's just that he appears. It's almost like he's Melchizedek of old. When Abraham met this king who just suddenly appears and there's no mention of a mother or no mention of a father. And it's just a foreshadow of what Christ would be. So now we have with Elijah the omission of details. Eventually we're told of a supernatural translation of being taken into heaven. It must be a picture of the coming of Christ, the perfect prophet. Malachi tells us in his prophecy in chapter 4 that Elijah would come again. But what was it Elijah was to do? What was it about Elijah that stood in such contrast to this wickedness of the times? Notice the way he's dressed. According to 2 Kings chapter 1, Ahab knew exactly who it was when it said that he was dressed in a garment of hair, camel's hair, and a belt around his waist. See, one of the things we learn about Elijah is that he's from Gilead. And one of the things we know about Gilead is that it's, it's a hill country. It's, it's made up of rugged people, shepherds, people that were hardened by outdoor life, people that were accustomed to solitude. This is the character of Elijah. 
one who's used to being alone, one who's used to standing against the elements of nature. But here he was. His loyalty is described in 1 Kings chapter 19, where he says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Inside and out, we see in this man a faithfulness to God in contrast to Ahab, who is worshiping the Baals. In Elijah, we see his commitment, his commitment to the word of God, to scripture, as he faithfully proclaims what God tells him to, as he's faithful to making sure that individuals who are not faithful to scripture understand the consequence. This was no easy task to stand alone, and yet his rugged upbringing prepared him for such a day. And yet one of the softest things we see about this Elijah is that he's a man of prayer. He knew utter dependence upon God and he knew the power that comes from God in prayer. So much so that he's lifted out and placed in the New Testament in the book of James. Listen to what James writes in James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Friends, I draw your attention to this to say, Elijah was a man of prayer. Elijah was a man of the word. Elijah was one who's willing to stand in the gap. Elijah knew where his loyalties lie. He was faithful to God even when the culture pushed against him. Elijah was a prophet of God. In fact, his very name means, my God is the Lord. It's into this description of two very contrasting figures that we see the conflict of the rest of Elijah's life. This conflict that took place was Elijah standing up to the evil man, Ahab, and his horrible, wicked wife, Jezebel. He was called to stand up against them, to call out their sin, and to call the people of Israel to repentance. In chapter 18, we're told that Elijah confronts Ahab. We're told that he will give a strong rebuke of Ahab's false worship. After all, Ahab's lifestyle was to deny the living and true God. Ahab would rather worship pagan statues than the living and true God. He was living, Ahab was, as though God was dead. And yet through Elijah, God would show he was very much alive. And as James so eloquently says, friends, Elijah is a man just like us. For our time is no different. We stand in a place where the culture pushes against us moment by moment, day by day. One doesn't have to watch the news very much to see how much the culture pushes against the things of God. We too have been called to a time 
of conflict. We too are standing against those who are in leadership that are pushing the worship of false gods over the worship of the living and true God. Dr. Philip Ryken writes and says, it is a day of casual sex, recreational drugs, unjustified violence, and the slaughter of the unborn children. This is a day when the secular and the spiritual leaders trust in their own schemes rather than God's instructions for the heathen nation. This is a day when people bow down before the idols of money, power, beauty, sex, and self. James was right. Elijah was a man just like us. He too lived in an evil day. The question before each of us is, what did Elijah do and what must we do? I draw you back that Elijah was a man of the word and Elijah was a man of prayer. Elijah was a man of loyalties. Elijah was in many respects a heroic antagonist to the leadership that was leading the people in the wrong direction. But friends, Elijah was just in many ways a foreshadow of what was to come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The true hero, the true antagonist of all that is evil. And Jesus has come and Jesus died and Jesus resurrected from the dead, defeating all our enemies. Friends, I ask you to consider that in its most truth that Jesus Christ has come and he died and he resurrected, defeating all, not some, not most, but all of our enemies. And that resurrection power of the risen Christ is with us still. It's with us in and through the spirit of Christ. And so therefore, we have no reason to be afraid. No matter the winds or the pushing of culture, no matter the direction of leadership, our call is to be faithful. Our call is to be true to the word of God and to be faithful in prayer. We are called to be loyal to the risen Christ and to call others to repent. The truth of the matter is that this conflict will ever be before us. This conflict is a conflict between sin and righteousness, between evil and good. And because we will live all the days of our lives while we're here on the face of this earth, in that conflict, in that struggle, there are some questions that each of us must answer. Will we be faithful to God? Will we be men and women loyal to King Jesus? Will we truly believe what the word of God says and seek to obey? Will we be faithful men and women of prayer, trusting in a living God? Will we be faithful witnesses in a faithless time? The question for us today is, are we faithfully trusting in the power of the true 
antagonist. The true hero of the story in a world of sin. Are we faithfully trusting in King Jesus? Friends, there's no greater concern of your pastors than those who come and faithfully attend but don't know Jesus. There's no greater concern than those who play along with religion but have no true religion in their own heart. Who are caught up in the winds and the ways of the world more than the sovereign righteousness of King Jesus. And here's why. As you will see over the next several weeks, Ahab will lose. The world will lose. But King Jesus wins. And all who are in Christ shall overcome. Listen to what John writes in 1 John 5, verses 4 through 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What we do with Jesus matters. Yes, we do hold to an old-time religion, but it's not a dead old-time religion. It's a living and true gospel of a resurrected Christ who fills us with his spirit so that we can be his witnesses in such a time as this. May we love King Jesus more than we love the things of this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin to set pace for a new book and new characters to begin to explore, I pray that we would see what it is to be faithful in a time of unfaithfulness. God, may we not get caught up in those who have power or money or prestige or fame, may we be caught up in Christ. May we be known as people of the word and people of prayer. May our loyalties to Jesus, King Jesus, be seen in every aspect of our lives. May we be faithful witnesses in such a time as this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.